When I was a child, my mom always told us never to play with matches. Play with fire and you're bound to get burned. Of course, she was concerned about the burns on my skin. But since my childhood, I've discovered that there are a number of ways that you can get burned. For example, take your retirement fund and invest them in lottery tickets and you'll get burned. Back talk your mother-in-law at the wedding rehearsal and buddy, you're going to get burned. Bet the house on the Hawks winning the NBA Finals, you'll get burned. Live a promiscuous sexual lifestyle, and you're going to get burned. Marry an unbeliever, and you'll get burned. Give your kids everything but your time, (laughs) you'll get burned. Ignore your Bible, yep, you'll be burned. And trust in people rather than trusting in God, you'll get burned. There are a lot of ways that you can get burned, and it doesn't even take matches. In fact, Leviticus chapter 10 recounts the story of two priests, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's boys. They were two brothers who got burned both figuratively and literally. Their story begins in verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. They became crispy critters. They came to the barbecue, and they were the ones that ended up on the grill. Priests on the Barbie, you could say. I suppose this is why sometimes priests get called friars. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Notice verse 1 explains that Nadab and Abihu had offered profane fire, or literally strange fire on the altar. Exactly what that was, we're not sure. There are some different theories Some Bible scholars believe that the brothers entered beyond the outer court into the Holy of Holies, which of course was off limits to everyone but the high priest. Others believe that their fire was from a source other than the brazen altar. That would have been a violation of the law. Still others say it was a matter of timing, the right act, but perhaps done at the wrong time. It could have been the right act done from a selfish motive. And since chapter 10, verse 9, we'll read it in a minute, prohibits the priest from drinking while offering the sacrifices, some people believe that they were drunk when they entered into the presence of the Lord. Here's what we know happened. At the end of chapter 9, Uncle Moses and Father Aaron had entered the tabernacle. Then they had come out to bless the people. And that's when the glory of God appeared in a tangible, physical form. Fire fell from heaven. The burnt offering and the fat on the altar were incinerated. They were consumed. The Hebrews shouted. They fell on their faces in awe of God. It was a holy moment. It was a powerful moment. It was an impressive display. And I'm sure those two brothers walked away thinking, that was cool. 
And it didn't take them long to decide that they wanted to duplicate this deed. Perhaps the boys thought, man, if we cause fire to fall from heaven, nobody at school is going to ever pick on us again. Think of the chicks we're going to get. Man, everybody likes fireworks shows. We could charge admission once we get good at this. You can imagine what they were thinking. Maybe I'm being a little too hard on them. Perhaps they weren't as selfish as I've portrayed them. Maybe they were just excited. Maybe they were just fired up about God. Perhaps they rushed in to worship the Lord in an unbiblical manner. Maybe they allowed their emotion to outweigh revelation. You know, today folks can get, make the same mistake. Folks get whipped up in a frenzy of excitement and they end up worshiping God in unbiblical and in confusing and in chaotic ways. You can go to churches where you can experience that. Either way, Moses and Aaron acted at God's prompting. Nadab and Abihu followed their own plotting and that's what got them into trouble. The older generation had been led by the Holy Spirit. They were all about God, but these young bucks, they were in the flesh. They were trusting in their own efforts. It was all about them, and it got them into trouble. Motivationally, there was a huge difference between what happened at the end of chapter 9 and at the beginning of chapter 10. But externally, it looked as if Nadab and Abihu were doing exactly what Moses and Aaron had done. I mean, they were just following a priestly example. They were just being obedient sons, doing what their father had done. Why this harsh treatment? Why did they get consumed? Why did fire fall from heaven? And this grieving father, Aaron, he needs an explanation for God. He needs an explanation for God's retaliation. And that's what he says in verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people... I must be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. Apparently he understood. I believe that the difference between what Nadab and Abihu did, between what Moses and Aaron did, I believe the difference was motive. I think we need to check our motives whenever we approach God. Whether we're priests or pastors or Sunday school teachers or worship leaders, anyone who approaches God on behalf of the people needs to do so reverently and soberly and biblically, not flippantly or selfishly or seeking vain glory. Guys, it is an awesome privilege for us to enter God's presence and we can come to his throne daily, but never take that access for granted. Be appreciative. Handle it appropriately. Henrietta Mears used to say to her students, learn to walk softly in the divine presence. We should do the same. God's honor, God's glory should be our agenda whenever we approach him. Fear God or you too can get burned. Well, verse 4 tells us, And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near Carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. These were the three pallbearers. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons. Remember, Aaron had four sons in all. Eleazar and Ithamar were the two surviving sons. And I guarantee you, they listened when daddy spoke. 
They had seen what had happened to their brothers. He says, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. In other words, as priests, their primary job was to represent God's justice and God's character. Really, Nadab and Abihu, no matter how sympathetic we were toward them, they got what they deserved. And Aaron's remaining family should refrain from showing any public remorse. Everyone needed to know that they agreed with God and they weren't siding with the victims. That's why he says, don't tear your clothes, don't, cover, don't uncover your head. Don't show any public remorse. Make sure everybody understands you're on God's side. He says, but let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses, I'm sure. They grieved privately, but not publicly. They left it to the nation to grieve the loss of Aaron's oldest sons. Well, then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. Now, it's possible this is why Nadab and Abihu were burned. The boys were drunk in God's house. They were under the influence of distilled spirits, not the Holy Spirit. And God makes sure that from this day forward, the priests are sober when they enter God's house. He says, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between clean, unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. A, should, a priest shouldn't be drunk because he has to make decisions that affect people's spiritual lives. He has to be able to discern between what's holy and unholy, what's clean and unclean, what pleases God and what doesn't please God. This is also why a pastor or an elder is forbidden from drinking alcohol. You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the deacons are to not drink much wine, but the elders are to not drink any wine at all. Imagine calling me one night with a spiritual question, seeking some spiritual advice, and I'm slurring my words, I'm hiccuping over the telephone, you know, I'm about to pass out. Hey, alcohol is the enemy of sound judgment, and that's why the priests and pastors today shouldn't drink it. Verse 12, Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, who were left, Take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have commanded. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place. And why did they call it a wave offering? Because they waved it. And why did they call it a heave offering? Because they heaved it up to God. He says, take these offerings, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your sons' due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. And remember, we studied this last time, the priestly portion was a two-piece dinner. The breast and the thigh, a piece of white meat and a piece of dark meat. I don't know if they had potato salad, but they could have. I'm not sure. It's interesting. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 13, Paul uses this very principle, the principle of the priestly portion, to justify paying the pastor. You want to know where we get this idea? You've been wondering, is that biblical? Well, Paul basically says that if the priest gets a portion of the sacrifice, then it's okay if the pastor gets a portion of the offerings. Verse 15 says, The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering, they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. In other words, the wave offering was the breast, the heave offering was the thigh. And it's possible that Nadab and Abihu didn't uh, eat the proper portions. Maybe they ate a portion of the sacrifice that was not designated for the priest. Maybe they ended up eating a leg or something. Could be one of the reasons too. Well, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering. And there it was, burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who, had, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And such things have befallen me. In other words, Moses, give me a break. I mean, think about it. Try losing your two sons and then having to keep a stiff upper lip about it. And then be asked to eat a holy meal. I don't think he felt like eating. I think he felt, if I have to eat this, I'm going to do it with a bad attitude. And Aaron says in verse 19, If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. Old Aaron had endured a lot in one day. And Moses realized that it was time to show some sympathy. In chapter 10, Moses asks how a priest can differentiate clean and unclean if he's drunk. We might wonder... How can we differentiate clean and unclean when we're sober? What did the Lord mean by these distinctions, clean and unclean? Well, chapter 11 discusses this. It discusses the kosher laws of Israel. The word kosher means approved. And we're told in this chapter why one animal was considered clean and why another animal wasn't. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven or divided hooves, and chewing the cud, that you may eat. In other words, here are the edibles. Animals that both chew their cud and have divided hooves, you can eat. An animal that has only one or neither would be considered unclean and inedible. Nevertheless, though these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. And he, and he lists some examples, some exceptions. He says the camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. 
We got a picture of a king. And there's the most beautiful woman in the world sitting on top of that camel. He says, don't eat any camels. This week, when you go to lunch, do not ask for camels if you want to stay kosher. Don't eat a camel, and it's probably not a good idea to smoke a camel either. They are unclean foods. The rock hyrax, or the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. You know, when we were in Israel back in May, we saw scores and scores of these little rock badgers crawling around on the rocks up around the Golan Heights. They're these furry little creatures. They look like chipmunks. There's a good picture of one. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. In other words, if there's a hare in your food, don't eat it. Verse 7. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. And here, my friend, is the major reason why I'm glad that I'm not Jewish. For I love swine meat. Bacon and ham and sausage and pork barbecue. I mean, if we were all Jewish, if we were living under the kosher laws, we all would have been struck dead this morning back here in the brook when we were picking out on that sausage back there in those grits. Hey, I'm a pig-eating Gentile who's been saved by God's grace. <laughs> I'm glad. Verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. Fish was a clean animal. You could eat a water creature that had fins or scales. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. Here's another reason why I'm glad I'm not Jewish. I'm also a shrimp-eating Gentile. <laughs> Shellfish were off-limits. Shrimp and scallops and lobsters were forbidden. And so the next time you sit down to that shrimp lover's dinner at you know where, my favorite restaurant, not Kathy's, but my favorite restaurant, Red Lobster, say a prayer. And thank the Lord that we are no longer under the law, but that we have been saved by God's grace. Well, seafood without fins and scales shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever is in the water does not have fins or scales. That shall be an abomination to you. You know, let me just say one thing. From time to time, I run into Christians, believers, Gentile believers, that become fascinated with their Jewish roots. And I, too, am fascinated with my Jewish roots. I'm reading through the Jewish scriptures and gleaning a lot of helpful information. But, but sometimes, they, in a lot of these Messianic congregations, you know, you get the feeling that if you're keeping the Jewish laws, if you're, you know, you know, you're kind of in that Jewish you know, uh, style, that you're more spiritual. Don't believe that for a second. We've been set free from the law. 
And you remember what the New Testament says. If you want to live under the law, then you need to live under all of the law. Don't you eat a shrimp. Don't you nibble on any sausage. If you're going to live under the law, well, then you've got to live under all the law. I'm so glad. I'm thankful. I'm done with that. Praise the Lord for his grace. Verse 13. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, and the falcon after its kind. Notice the falcon was a forbidden food. Falcons were non-kosher. God calls falcons unclean animals. Hey, even God called the falcons dirty birds. I've been waiting all week to do that. Every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl. You know, you can get ostrich meat at Fuddruckers. You can get an ostrich burger. You can also get a buffalo burger. If you're a Gentile, under grace. Not if you're a Jew, under the law. The short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind. The little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture. The stork, the heron after its kind. The hoopoe and the bat. Notice the bat. The bat. The bat was considered a foul food. Bats and fowls. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours. Those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. In other words, grasshoppers were clean. They were kosher, which is why John the Baptist could come eating locusts and wild honey and still keep kosher, be accepted by the Jews. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Now. In Exodus chapter 15 and in verse 26, I want you to read it. It's on the screen. God made a promise to Israel, and this is what he promised her. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And these dietary laws were God's fulfillment of that promise. Here in Leviticus chapter 11, God eliminated from the Hebrew diet meat that was prone to carry parasites and disease and infection. Keeping kosher, eating only clean meats, protected Israel from the type of diseases that would plague the Gentile nations around them. This was an act of God's mercy. It's interesting, in the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague swept through Europe, it was the Jews. They were the only group, people group that was unaffected by the plague. And the Gentiles accused them of poisoning their rivers and their streams. They couldn't figure out why the Jews were not affected by the plague. You see, it was their diet and their hygiene that made them immune. Today, the nation Israel 
has one of the longest age spans of any nation. And it's because of their hygiene and their kosher laws. God was and is an excellent dietitian. Back in June, Kathy and I went down to a Caribbean island to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And there I made a critical mistake. I forgot that I was outside the United States. I mean, it was a resort. I forgot I was in a foreign land, and I started eating like a local, just pigging out. And it was a huge mistake. I think it was the chili con carne. But, buddy... I had a severe case of Montezuma's revenge. My head hung over the toilet for 24 hours. I spent a day and a night in the deep. You know, ancient Israel was kind of like modern America. It's because of our excellent sanitation and our skill at food preparation and our immunizations. That's what protects us from disease and infections with which the rest of the world struggles. You know, you go to a foreign country and you may have to get shots. You come to America, nobody has to get shots. Israel, too, was schooled by God in diet and sanitation, and it protected them from diseases that affected their neighbors. Of course, today, food preparation techniques have improved to the point to where many of these foods can now be eaten without fear or risk, pork and shrimp and so forth. And so we've been set free from these laws. But back in ancient times, these were real issues. You know, but I think there is more to these notions of clean and unclean than just diet. For through these laws, God also wanted to teach his people some vital spiritual lessons. Understand, man is a consumer by nature. We're a consumer physically and spiritually. We feed our bodies, but we also feed our souls, don't we? And just as some of the foods the Israelites ate were deemed clean and some unclean, likewise, we need to deem some of the movies that we watch and the music we listen to and the books we read, we need to either deem them clean or unclean. And we need to feed our souls on that which is clean, not that which is unclean. The old computer adage is true, garbage in, garbage out. Take in trash and you'll end up trash. Hey, the health food advocate says you are what you eat, which is why my nickname is Twinkie. <laughs> but the phrase, you are what you eat, also applies to us spiritually. And Moses was teaching the Hebrews that if they ate an unclean food or touched an unclean object, it made them unclean and therefore unfit for worship or for the service of God. And this same truth applies to us. Consume unclean material. Dwell on unclean stimuli. Touch things that are unclean and you'll become unclean and you'll be unfit for the worship or the service of God. Hey, don't be like the guy who complained that there was too much sex and violence on his VCR. Think about it, you'll get it. You can take control of what you take in. You can. If you want to be useful and effective for God, you need to set yourself apart. You need to reserve your mind and your soul for God's influences, for God's input. We need to be spiritually clean. Well, verse 24 continues the instruction. 
By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any beast which divides the, the foot but is not cloven-hoofed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. Touch a carcass of an unclean animal and you'll be unclean. And whatever goes on its paws among... That's not talking about a CD player. It's paws... Among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. And if you're unclean, you couldn't enter the tabernacle. You couldn't join with God's people in worship of God. And so for a few hours, you were unfit for service. Verse 29. These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth. The mole, the mouse. Notice the mouse was unclean. And it teaches us a lesson for today. For the mouse that connects to your computer and enables you to surf the internet can also be a vile and unclean creature. You know, it's interesting that the computer mouse was invented by a guy named Douglas Engelbart in 1968. He noticed that it was shaped like a mouse, and the long wire that connected it to the computer looked like a tail. And since it scurried across the face of the computer, he called it a mouse. But like mice, the computer can carry terrible disease and sad, horrible infection, pornography is the bubonic plague of today. And just like the bubonic plague of yesteryear, it's carried by the mouse. And it's killing minds, and it's killing hearts, and it's ruining lives, and it's ruining marriages. And it makes the mouse an unclean creature. Guys, do whatever it takes to protect yourself from it. Do whatever it takes to protect yourself from the mouse to protect yourself from the pornography that's out there. Now here's some more unclean creatures. And the large lizard after its kind. The gecko. <laughs> Does Geico car insurance realize that they have an unclean animal as a mascot? As to insects, as to insects, Basically what he's saying here is you can eat the ones that hop, but not the ones that crawl. So the grasshopper you can eat. These other ones you can't. Verse 30, forbids the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. Next time you see a little lizard running around, if you're tempted to eat it, and you want to stay kosher, don't. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. Anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water and it shall be unclean until evening. Then it shall be clean. 
How do you cleanse something that's been contaminated and rendered unclean? You wash it with water. And spiritually speaking, guys, the water is the word of God. This is why we need to cleanse ourselves daily by continually flushing our minds and bathing our perspectives in the word of God, in the scriptures. This is how we cleanse ourselves right here, through the washing of God's word. Well, verses 33 through 40 tell us that if a lizard falls into a cooking pot, then the pot becomes unclean. If an unclean animal falls into your pot, you've got an unclean pot. God wanted to protect his people from the spread of infection, the spread of disease. The CDC in Atlanta will tell you that communicable disease is a serious business. And in third world countries, it is one of the main culprits. Uh, the main culprit of communicable disease is the transmission through insects. And so here he's saying, you know, if a, if a lizard falls into your pot, be careful because it could be carrying some kind of disease that could infect the pot and so forth. 33 through 40 protects them from this kind of contamination. Verse 41. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. And so my mom's advice to me was right. Stay away from creeps. It shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. Centipedes are unclean, and therefore an abomination. And speaking of centipedes, did you hear about the big football game between the animals and the insects? Well, the first half was a slaughter. I mean, the animals were winning. Every time the bear or the lion or the elephant touched the football, they went all the way for a touchdown. The poor insects had no defense at all. They were totally overmatched. But in the second half, suddenly the centipede appeared and joined the action. He started playing for the insects, and I mean, he was sensational. He scored touchdown after touchdown, and every time the elephant dropped back to pass, the centipede would sack him. I mean, the centipede brought his team back from a huge deficit and won the game with a last-second field goal. And guess who kicked it? The centipede used one of his feet to kick the field goal, the game-winning field goal. And, and after the game, the elephant was having this conversation with the lizard, and he said, man, he said, that centipede was an incredible football player. But, but I've got just one question for you. Why didn't he play in the first half? And that's when the lizard looked at him and said, well, Throughout the first half, he was in the locker room lacing up his shoes. <laughs> well, verse 44 is the key verse in this chapter. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here's a great definition for holiness. To be holy is to be holy for God. Are you holy for God? With every ounce of your being, with every arena of your life, are you dedicated to God? Do you want to please and glorify Him with all you've got? We should be set apart. We should be different from the rest of the world. The Hebrews, in following these kosher laws, made themselves different from the other nations. We, too, should be cut from a different piece of cloth. To be holy is to be holy for God. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, 
and school is about to start back, and you high schoolers need to remember that you can defile yourself by hanging out with creeps. And so choose your friends wisely. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Notice God frees us to follow Him. Always remember that. God has freed us to follow Him. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And verse 46 summarizes the chapter. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Now, chapter 12 establishes procedures for a woman after she has given birth. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. Now, a woman's customary impurity was her time of the month. And during that time, the time of her menstrual flow, she was considered unclean. Now, understand, she was not morally unclean. She was ceremonially unclean. And before we go further, we need to delve a bit into the mind of the Hebrew in addition to this idea of moral cleanness, they also had a concept that was different. It was ceremonial uncleanness. And you need to know the difference. You see, moral verdicts of clean and unclean were based on the good or evil intrinsic to the act. But ceremonial verdicts of clean and unclean were based on symbolism and typology. You see, nothing is sinful or immoral about a woman's menstrual flow. But when the Hebrews thought of human reproduction, God wanted them to recall the sin that had poisoned the very fountain of life. We are born into sin. You remember David said in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I've had four kids. And laboratory findings reveal that they don't like it when they don't get their way. And they kick and scream and cry, and they're selfish by nature. You see, sin has tainted the springs of life. And to remind us of that fact, to condition us to that truth, God attached a ceremonial uncleanness to reproductive acts. Thus, following the birth of a son, a woman was unclean for seven days. She had brought a little sinner into the world. And God called her unclean. It's a reminder of that fact. Verse 3. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Did you hear about the pastor and the rabbi? They were arguing with each other about who was most persuasive. And, and they both said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we go down to the zoo and... I'll try to convert a bear to Judaism, and you try to convert a bear to Christianity. Well, after, you know, they one went into one cage, one went into the other cage. And, and the pastor was terribly mauled. I mean, he was beaten up pretty bad. He staggered out, and he said, oh, boy. He said, that was really hard. It's hard to get a bear to believe. 
But then the rabbi, they had to rush him to the hospital. And, and he was just, I mean, he was ripped apart. I mean, he was in bad, bad shape. Wires running out of him, IVs flowing into him. And, and they, they came to him and they said, tell me, how, how did you do? Did you convert that bear? He says, have you ever tried to circumcise a bear? Well, on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, why did God wait until eight days? Why until the eighth day for the male to be circumcised? There is a practical reason for this. Scientists today now know that the blood of a newborn doesn't coagulate until the eighth day of life. And thus, a baby boy would have bled to death if you tried to circumcise him on the fifth day or the fourth day. God knew that information long before the age of science. But understand, the circumcision was symbolic. You can trace it all the way back to Abraham. You remember God promised Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. At first, Abraham had trusted in his flesh. And you remember the mistake he made. He went in with his handmaid, Hagar. And his own efforts, the works of the flesh produced a son named Ishmael and boy has that been trouble ever since but God proved his power to Sarah when against all odds he caused her to conceive and to bear a son a promised son named Isaac and circumcision became the symbol of man's impotence and God's miracle life-giving power thus circumcision cuts away the flesh and obeys the word of God Circumcision is a reminder that spiritual life comes from God, not the flesh. And isn't it interesting that the symbol of God's life-giving power was carried out on the eighth day. It was the eighth day the child was circumcised. You know, another example of God's life-giving power occurred on the eighth day. You remember Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. But add seven before that, Jesus was resurrected on the eighth day. This is all laced with symbolism, chapter 12. Verse 4 says, She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. When a woman bears a son, she's unclean 33 days. Add the initial seven days, that equals 40 days, and 40 is the biblical number for judgment. Again, it was symbolic of God's judgment on sin and the sinner. It's interesting, though, that when a woman gave birth to a daughter, she was unclean twice as long, 66 days. And I have a theory about this. It could be that God is warning us, warning the parents that that daughter is going to end up costing them twice as much money as the son. Why are you laughing? You've had a daughter, haven't you? Serious. I was just joking. Seriously. I think the double penalty is an anticipation of the daughter's birth later in life. This daughter is going to birth a child herself. In other words, this little sinner I just brought into the world is going to end up producing another little sinner. And thus, the period of 
purification was, six, was twice as long, 66 days. Verse 6. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Notice the turtle doves, the pigeons, they were provisions for the poor. If you couldn't buy a lamb, then you could bring the turtle doves, which is exactly what Joseph and Mary did. When on the eighth day they brought Jesus to the temple to have him circumcised, they were too poor to buy a lamb, and so they brought the turtle doves. Chapters 13 and 14 give us laws relating to the dreaded disease known as leprosy. Some have called it the AIDS of the ancient world. It was a disease that literally ate away your flesh. Middle East missionary William Thompson once reported on an encounter he had with a group of lepers. He writes, As I approached Jerusalem, I was startled by the sudden sight of beggars without eyes, without nose, without hair, without everything. They held out their handless arms. Unearthly sounds gurgled through their throats without pallets. In a word, I was horrified. There were two types of leprosy in the ancient world. Tuberculoid leprosy was a benign form. It lasted a few years and then it went away. Whereas lepromatis was malignant, it was highly contagious, and it produced severe deformities. And apart from an act of God, there was no known cure for this type of leprosy. Both diseases began with a white or a red patch on the skin, just a little bitty patch. The sore, though, soon became ulcerated and it spread. And the soft tissues began to deteriorate. The nerve endings were numbed and therefore the tissues began to rot away. Appendages were literally eaten away. Leprosy numbs the nerve endings and thus the leper often will accidentally stick his hand in a fire without realizing the damage that's done. He'll spill boiling water on top of him without realizing what's happened to him because the nerve endings are dead. Today, when lepers are treated, they're given a cat to take home. And the cat shoes away the mice that nibble away at the leper's feet while he sleeps. Doesn't know they're there because he doesn't feel them. Lepers are often called the walking dead. And I've got a few pictures to show you. And if you've got a queasy stomach, you, need to, you might need to just close your eyes. But here are a few pictures. There's a couple of leprous hands. Notice his fingers on his hands, or lack of them. And notice the white, patchy sores, indicative of leprosy. Today, leprosy is known as Hansen's disease. It was named after a Norwegian doctor who discovered the bacillus that causes it. It now can be treated successfully. There are medications for it. Because of the highly contagious nature of the disease, in ancient times, lepers were isolated from the rest of the camp. And as a result, they lost their families, literally, their businesses, their friends. 
their right to travel, even their right to worship with God's people. And thus, the proper diagnosis for leprosy was critical. There was much writing on it. And that's what chapter 13 is all about. There is, though, one other reason why this chapter needs to be of interest to us. In the Bible, leprosy is a type of sin. Characteristics of the ancient disease and our spiritual dilemma are strikingly similar. Leprosy is to the outer man what sin is to the inner man. It's loathsome and ugly. It starts small and imperceptibly underneath the surface of the skin. You're unaware of the damage it does. It's progressive. It gets worse and worse. It creates a callousness and an insensitivity you no longer feel. It stifles fellowship and isolates you from other people. It hinders worship. It can spread to others. In Bible times, leprosy could only be cured by a miracle from God. The same is true with our sin. And its healing was pronounced by the priest. And in our sin's case, our high priest, Jesus Christ. While on earth, Jesus often healed the leper. And it demonstrated his power over both the disease and the sin that brings all diseases into this world. Well, verse 1 tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot. And here's some insight into what causes sin. Sometimes it's a swelling of pride, isn't it? It's a swelling. At other times, it's a scab, or it's a callousness, or a bitterness that forms over a wound that we don't deal with properly. Still at other times, a sin can be brought on by a bright spot. A strength or a victory that we take credit for ourselves. This is how sin begins. And it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore. Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. The priest shall examine the sore on the skin of the body. And if the hair on the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a leprous sore. And just as leprosy is deeper than the skin, likewise sin, <laughs> it's inter internal before it becomes external. Okay, sin originates in our minds and in our hearts, under the skin, below the skin. Sinful actions always come from sinful attitudes. Then the priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and its hair has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate the one who has the sore seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore appears to be as it was, and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. Then the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And indeed, if the sore has faded, and the sore has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Now, in other words, if the priest has any doubt about this, he can isolate the person for seven days. For when it came to leprosy, there was a rule. Time will tell. Give it a little time. Give it seven days and see what results. You know, here, here's a great, a great lesson for us. Especially when we're called on to judge the genuineness of a person's repentance. This happens from time to time. Has he or she really changed? 
Have they, are they really willing to change or are they just sorry they got caught? Are they sincere? Should I give them a second chance? We have to make these decisions a lot. Do we give them another chance at ministry? Do we give him his job back? Do we get a second chance at marriage? Hey, here's the lesson we need to learn. Time will tell. Give him seven years. Sometimes seven months. And at the end of that time, see what happens to the sinful, leprous-looking spot. Has it spread? Or has it faded away? But if the scab should at all spread over the skin... And remember, sin spreads. It begins as a small spot, barely noticeable. But it's infectious and it spreads. It spreads to other areas of our life. It spreads to other people. It spreads throughout the fellowship. If sin is not dealt with, it can eat away at the whole person. After he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again. And if the priest sees that the scab is indeed spread on the skin then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. Now verses 1 through 8 deal with the leprous looking patch that rises spontaneously. Verses 9 through 17 deal with cases that involve swelling and rawness of skin. Verses 18 through 23 address cases of potential leprosy involving a boil. Verses 24 through 28 cover symptoms that begin with a burn on the skin. Verses 29 through 37 deal with sores that appear in your beard or on your head. And verses 38 through 44 address sores that break out on a bald head. So when you get home tonight, let me encourage you to read through these various procedures and check yourself over for leprosy. Hopefully, we're all clean. But look in verse 45. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If another person approached that leper it was his responsibility to ward them off by screaming unclean unclean imagine the psychological effect of replacing in your vocabulary the word hello with the word unclean that's terrible you greet people and they flee to the other side of the street you know people come up to want to show you a kindness and you have to yell unclean unclean and ward them off Overnight, the leper became a social outcast. And this is why the diagnosis was so extremely important. You know, it's interesting that Jesus could have steered clear from the leper who approached him. Hey, he could have healed him. He could have healed him from a distance. He did that at times. He could have healed the leper by just speaking the word. But that's not what Jesus did. He wanted to reach out and touch this man that nobody else wanted to touch. Matthew chapter 8 verse 3 tells us Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. For the first time in years, this leper felt the touch of another human being and it conveyed to him love. Before Jesus ever healed his body of his leprosy, he healed his spirit and his emotions and his soul. 
from the ostracization that he had experienced. Guys, Jesus still touches the untouchable. He wants to touch us tonight in a very special way and convey to us his love. You know, Jesus is still touching lepers in the world around us, but you know what his hands, who, who has, you know where his hands are today, don't you? These are his hands. He still touches the untouchable, but guess who he touches them through? Through you, through me. We are his hands in the world today. Well, verses 47 through 59 tell us what to do if leprosy gets into a garment. You see, in ancient Israel, there was an active fungus that actually bred in cloth. And when this fungus was found in a garment, either the contaminated part was torn out of the garment, or it was washed clean, or in cases where they couldn't get it out, the garment was taken out and burned. But the fungus was never allowed to grow for it could produce a leprosy. Which reminds me. What did one amoeba say to the other amoeba? Wow. He's a fun guy. Verse 47 says. Also, if a garment has a leprous plague in it. Whether it is a woolen garment or a linen garment. Whether it is in the warp or woof of linen or wool, whether in leather or in anything made of leather. And if the plague is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the leather, whether in the warp or in the wolf, or in anything made of leather, it is a leprous plague and shall be shown to the priest. And Moses goes on to give instruction as to how the priest is to deal with these leprous garments. But let me close tonight with an application to you fathers, dad, you are the priest in your family, are you not? We as fathers are the priest in our family. And it is our job to expect our kids' clothes for fungus and for leprosy. Now, my son can wear the same pants and shirt for months at a time without ever getting them washed, and so this might be very literal at my house. But there's another form of fungus and leprosy. You remember leprosy is a type of sin. And Dad, let me ask you, have you inspected your children's clothes for any fungus? Have you looked at what your daughter's wearing? Lewd shirts, these low-cut, low, low-cut jeans, tight pants, obscene t-shirts. You need to inspect your children's garments. Some of those garments need to be taken out and burned like the leprous garment. I mean, some of them need to at least be eliminated from your child's wardrobe. Immodest clothes are also a sign of a growing fungus. And so beware. Unless you address their dress, that fungus might lead to leprosy. It's 8 o'clock and I'm finished. Hope you enjoyed tonight's Bible study. Hey, for next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about what happens when you're healed from leprosy and how the priest discerns that and there's some amazing things we're going to uncover in chapter 14 and then in chapter 15 
we're going to have so much fun with chapter 15. It's all about bodily discharges. <laughs> bodily discharges. Oh, man. Are we going to have fun in chapter 15? Hey, they do that in the middle school all the time. Have you ever heard what the middle school pastor... Any middle school lesson always has some reference to bodily discharges. It's just part of a middle school Bible study. Isn't it, Jeff? Yeah. It's just all, there's always some kind of reference to something like that in a middle school Bible study. But we're going to bring it into the big church next Sunday night. Bodily discharges. And then in chapter 16, oh, man, a glorious chapter. Glorious chapter. We're going to talk about the scapegoat and the day of atonement. And how all of it speaks to us of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that are here. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and teach us. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Bless us this week as we go about being a light and witness for you. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>